We are back in Acts today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 1. If you guys want to go ahead and turn there, it is going to take me a hot minute to get there, but that is where we're going to be today is Acts chapter 11. Before we jump into that, I just had a, I had a thought as I was kind of, kind of preparing uh, getting ready this week, and it basically goes like this. If you know me, you probably already know this, but I have a, I have a love-hate relationship with traveling. I, re- I really enjoy exploring kind of new experiences, those sorts of things, but I'm also very much a homebody. I, I hate feeling out of my element. I know that's, that's ridiculous, but, but over the years, I've had the privilege to get to participate in and lead several international mission trips, and every time, regardless of where we end up going, I have basically the same sort of experience. When I'm there, I love all the little memories, all the cool little experiences, the unique cuisine, the beautiful places on earth that I get to experience. I love the unique kind of ministry you get to do in that kind of setting. There's, there's something about being outside of your context that just, it just makes sharing the gospel and bold proclamation and, and in clear communication of who Jesus is, it just, just makes it like easier, you know what I mean, for some reason. And and at the same time as I say that, how much I love those trips, and I'm grateful for each one of them, and I love all those aspects of them, from the literal moment that I cross the border out of our country into another one, till the moment I get back, I have a pit in my stomach. I, I, I hate it. And I know that sounds wild, right? But there's just something about feeling out of my element, not, not knowing what people around me are saying, not, not knowing the smells, not knowing the locations, feeling lost. Like It's just something about that international context pushes all my buttons. I know that's incredibly petty. You're like, you are there to minister the gospel. But I'm, I'm serious with you guys. It's, it's, it's just how I am. I have this love-hate relationship with mission trips. I get so excited about the work I get to do but I literally spend the entire time wait, like anticipating coming home. It's, it's, it's just how I'm wired. To that end, when I read about Hudson Taylor for the first time, it took my love-hate relationship with missions and just put it on overdrive. If you've never heard of this guy, you should Google him. You should read uh, his biography. There's a couple of them, but there's one that was written by his son. It's the best one. You really, like, it really is like one of those books that just should just be on your pile as a Christian. He founded the China Inland Mission, which is still in operation today, and it's branched out into several other regions around the world. And he changed the face of Protestant Christian mission work. You see, in the days leading up to Taylor, missionary work, especially within the Protestant church, but really in the entirety of the church, was as much cultural work as it was spiritual work. You see, European Christian missionaries would be emissaries of both Jesus and Western culture. Wherever they went, they would dress in European clothes, they would speak the European languages, eat European food, congregate in little compounds of missionaries with other European missionaries. There was an expectation that those who came to Christ for salvation, regardless of the context, would adopt European methods of worship and European church practices. Hudson Taylor fought against this very foundational idea. He required his missionaries to wear local clothes, to speak the local language, to eat the local food, to live amongst the locals, to completely adopt their culture. And beyond that, he saw 
uh, international mission as a lifelong calling and only accepted missionaries who were planning on being on the mission field for the rest of their lives. A lifelong call. Now these sorts of practices, aside from the lifelong call piece, these sort of practices are pretty much normative in global missions today. If you go and hang out with IMB folk or things like that. But this was a revolution in Protestant missions at the time. People thought Hudson Taylor was a nut job. He, he would come home uh, to England, and, and he actually came to the, uh, the United States also, and he would do these tours of fundraising for his missionaries, and he would come wearing Chinese clothing with a Chinese hairstyle as just this old white English guy. <laughs> and people were just like, this guy's a nut job. <laughs> Who the heck is this dude? But he would just share the call and go, listen, this is the call. You are not a citizen of England. You are not a citizen of the United States. You're a citizen of the kingdom, and there are people who need to hear the message. Can you imagine that ask for folks who are considering a call to missions? I can. I can because I would hate it. If I got a, an invitation like that, if someone challenged me, if I was sitting in one of those church meetings and Hudson Taylor looked me in the eyes and said, you seem gifted and called to ministry, you should do this. I'm just telling you guys, and I'm saying this confessionally, not because I'm awesome. It would take a movement of God to get my heart to do that. <laughs> to get my heart to give up, to set aside all the comforts and norms of my home and my home culture for the sake of the gospel on the other side of the world for the rest of my life, it would take a movement of God. That would be brutally hard for me. Hopefully, as you hear this, there's a part of you going, but Hudson Taylor's right. You're not a citizen of the United States. I mean, you are, right? But your primary citizen kingdom of God. We're sojourners passing through. We're, 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 we're awaiting our homecoming, our true homecoming, right? My, my, my home culture isn't really Americana, suburbia, Midwest, whatever. It's the kingdom of God, right? Right. Which is exactly what we're going to talk about today. So we're continuing this, this story in Acts and we're directly continuing the story that we started last week about the inclusion of the Gentiles into the life of the church. If you missed last week, we talked about this amazing truth that God's church is radically diverse. That God is calling all kinds of people unto himself and into his family. This, this, uh, this is amazing, right? This is, this is worth getting excited about, worth celebrating. But today... We're going to move past the yay, yay, rah, rah, God invites in so many kinds of people. How cool is that? And we're going to talk about the actual practical implications of this amazing truth on our own comforts and idolatry. So if you're going to pick between last week and this week, last week was the fun one, guys. You picked the rough one to jump into. But it's fine. The, the plain reality is this, guys. If we align ourselves with Jesus, and what I mean by that is, if we give ourselves over to the work of inviting the outsiders to come and be an insider and find life and freedom in Jesus, right? If we align ourselves with the work of Christ, we will have to lay aside both our own cultural comforts and graciously engage in conflicts 
with those brothers and sisters who aren't ready to lay aside the same cultural trappings. You're going to have to do both. You have to be ready to get uncomfortable, and you're going to have to be ready to get in fights with people who don't want to be uncomfortable. So let's jump into the text. Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 1, it says this. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. So I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a, a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me, and looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. Now this happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were and sent me from, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinctions. Now these six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, as we take just a few minutes today to discuss your word, we ask that you would be very present, that you would be our discipler today, that you would illuminate the text. God, we ask that you would graciously and kindly pick at our idolatry and pick at the places where we don't want to submit to you and we don't want to hear from you. God, we pray that you would convict us where we need it today, that we would be open and receptive to what you have for us. God, you are faithful, and we trust you for this work. So we pray it in your name. Amen. So here's what I'd like to do with this. this. This text, I'm sure you noticed, mostly just repeats what we've already engaged in the prior chapter. But we're still going to walk through the actual narrative here. We're going to remind ourselves of the larger story of what's happening. And then I'm just going to point out a couple of kind of the cultural dynamics that are happening in our specific part. And I think it will help lead us back to the really simple and amazing larger gospel truth of this whole chunk of narrative but that's going to lead us to these really practical two applications of that truth. We're going to talk about the need to value the advancement of the kingdom more than we value our cultural comfort. Let me say that one one more time because we're going to say it a lot today. We're going to talk about the need to value the advancement of the kingdom more than we value our cultural comfort. 
and we're going to talk about how graciously addressing the inevitable conflict that is created by that kind of priority is really important. We're going to end out our time with some encouragement from one of Jesus' most famous parables in Luke, and then I'm just going to invite us all to sit and pray for a minute and celebrate how good God is. Sound like a plan? So let's jump into this. Remember, we're, we're stepping into a narrative that is already in progress. Last week, we went through all of Acts chapter 10. In that story, we see this amazing progression where God works supernaturally, supernaturally to orchestrate a new thing happening in his kingdom. God appears to this Gentile Roman centurion named Cornelius, who's been pursuing God and been seeking out holiness in his own pagan way. And God says, I have something new for you. So go to this city and get this guy. He's going to tell you something important, which is just the most God way of engaging someone, right? Like no details, but it's wonderful. And then the scene jumped over to Peter, who's hanging out at this his house in Joppa. And he has this vision from God where God connects the idea of clean and unclean foods from Leviticus 11 to the relationship of the Jewish church to the, the Gentiles now. He, he gives this image to Peter of this, this sheet coming down full of all different kinds of animals and says, go and hunt and cook yourself a meal. And Peter's appalled because he follows kosher and he's never done that before. And God three different times tells him, do not call unclean what I have called clean. What, what, what God is essentially telling Peter is, look, dude, I get to define what's clean and what's unclean not you. That's my deal. So if I call it clean, your job is to deal with it, not to argue, (laughs) which is pretty intense, right? Especially since literally Leviticus 11 very clearly lines out in black and white terms what animals are clean and unclean. And God tells Peter in this vision, hey, I'm doing something new. Something new. Something about that law that you followed your whole life is fulfilled in Christ. So we're doing something new. And the minute he comes out of that trance, and by the way, we talked about this last week, but the the three-piece repetition is this, this idea that's built into the Jewish prophetic culture, which is essentially this. If God speaks three times to a prophet, it is certain and unchangeable. There's no arguing. There's no going back. So God is telling Peter in no uncertain terms, I am doing something new. Do not miss this. Do not fight me on this. I'm doing this. And as soon as that's over, these Roman soldiers show up, say, hey, we're looking for a guy named Peter. And the Spirit says to him very clearly, this is it, bud. Go with him. So Peter goes and he meets with Cornelius and, and Cornelius tells him the whole deal. An angel appeared to me and told me to come get you. This is wild. What, what, I brought everyone I know. Like, what is it you need to tell us? And Peter like gets his sermon ready and like starts talking. And before he can even like get to the good part of the story, the Holy Spirit just starts breaking out in power and everyone in the room gets saved and receives salvation through repentance and starts showing the, the works of the Spirit in miraculous ways, just like on the day of Pentecost. It's wild. Before we can even get like all the way through the sermon, God's already like, all right, we've waited too long. Boom! And just like brings them to salvation in his presence. It's a powerful, wild, beautiful story that shows us so many wonderful things about the gospel. 
It shows us how, how God sees us and he sees every act of love and other pursuing kindness and holiness, even when we think it's ignored. It shows how, how God is so generous and how his kingdom is so much more broad than we think it is. It shows the lengths to which God is willing to go to have his. It's a beautiful story. And all around, it's just amazing. It ends with nothing but celebration, right? Our text picks up immediately after all of this awesome party type scene. And as is so often the case, when amazing things happen in ministry, Peter gets home and finds people mad at him which is ludicrous that this goes all the way back to the times of Scripture, but it does. He walks home into a conflict. A group within the church called the Circumcision Party is upset that Peter shared meals with Cornelius and his family. And we've got to stop and talk about this for a minute. You see, on several levels, this was actually really to be expected, Right? I mean, if God had to supernaturally appear to Peter in a vision and repeat it three times, a way of basically saying, do not question me on this, then it's pretty safe to say that this was going to be a hard thing for the church to swallow, right? This term circumcision party, we're going to see it several more times in Acts, and actually they show up in the whole of the New Testament several times. This basically represents a far-right, conservatively Jewish wing of the early church. They believed strongly that Christians were simply Jews who were following the true Messiah, Jesus. Because of this core conviction, they believed that part of being a good Jesus-following Christian was being a good Torah-observant Jew. Beyond this, this, this segment of the church followed a very specific pharisaical form of Judaism that called for extreme holiness through observance of the law and the observance of hedge laws or the teachings of the rabbis. This means they believed the only way to truly follow Jesus meant not just to convert and be a Jew, but also to be a conservative practicing Jew who followed the Torah and followed the Talmud. This was a lot to ask for. But surprisingly, the vast majority of the early church were conservative Pharisaical Jews. And so it didn't really cause a problem until this, mo- until this point in the story. This is a lot to ask of someone converting to Christianity. And we see how it causes tension with the actual apostles. From this perspective, we really shouldn't be shocked that these people were shocked to hear that Peter had dined with Cornelius. Although eating with Gentiles is not directly prohibited in the Torah, it is directly prohibited in the Talmud. Eating with Gentiles was a big deal. And beyond this, the cultural weight of hospitality in the Roman Empire and in the first century Jewish world was so much more intense than we think of those things. It was so much more weighty than just hanging out with people over dinner, the way, the way we think of hospitality. It was to, to, to share in hospitality with someone in this day and age, whether you were Jewish or Roman, was, was genuinely to align yourself with that person. It was about, it was essentially saying, I'm about what these people are about. For Peter to not just enter the house of a Roman centurion, 
not just a Gentile, a Roman centurion, not even just a Roman soldier, and a native homeland Italian Roman soldier. Cornelius is part of the Italian cohort. He's, he's a middleman in the Roman army, right? To stay there and share meals with him, this is a big deal. This would have felt like a betrayal for a lot of the Jewish folk in the church. I mean, here you have Peter. Peter, the apostle, the leader, the pastor, aligning himself with the enemy. They haven't even gotten to the amazing story, right, of what God, what God did with Cornelius and his family or, or how Cornelius was living before God. They're just hearing that their leader, their pastor, their shepherd was aligning himself with their oppressor. It would have been painful. It would have been shocking. So naturally, they confront Peter. And this really sets up, I think, the tension in our text in a way that I think, I think it's really relatable for us. See, Peter is writing high on this amazing new thing God is doing in the church, but a particular segment of his home church, which is extremely conservative and culturally entrenched, has a really hard time with this change and is initially offended and critical. Now, I don't know if you guys have spent literally any amount of time in church life, but if you have you can probably relate to that story on some level, right? So what are we actually to do? I mean, I think we all know the reality is if we, we, we worship a God who loves to seek out outsiders, God loves to, to find people and bring them in. He loves to, to find the lost, to redeem the unrighteous, to resurrect the dead. We would all affirm that, right? We can yes and amen that in a space like this. But I got to be honest, as much as that idea is beautiful in theory, in practice, it means that a church is going to be super messed up and full of super messed up people who are in various levels of progress in their sanctification. It means a church that's actually drawing in the people God draws in is going to be a flying, steaming mess. How can we walk this balance of being the sort of place and people where sinful, messed up, broken people feel the safety and the invitation of Jesus while also loving and shepherding the folk who are already here and who don't want the proverbial carpet messed up? In this guy's is a balance we have to walk. It is so easy to pick one side or the other and to be super judgmental and be super divided within the church. But Jesus did not leave us this option. It's not how he treated us. It's not how he treated his church. Remember Luke 7 and the story of Jesus and Simon the Pharisee and the prostitute. In that scene, Jesus somehow manages to perfectly thread the needle of loving and inviting the prostitute into the kingdom while also challenging Simon to come to him in repentance as well. We cannot seek to be like Jesus and avoid loving and serving all of the people that God has brought into the equation of his church. All of them. The ones that we more naturally align with culturally and preference-wise, and the ones that we don't. 
I think Peter shows us here two really practical ways the church, i.e. you and me, can do exactly this. We can walk out this balance in love and grace. The first one is this. Peter addresses the conflict with grace. Because the conflict is unavoidable. But Peter addresses it with grace. Look at his response to the folk in his church. The text says, Peter began and explained it to them in order. This is basically saying that Peter calmly and clearly explained what happened. I love that. He doesn't just rebuke them for holding him to a Talmudic law instead of a scriptural one. He doesn't jump all over them. He doesn't get angry and defensive. He doesn't go ballistic because they didn't even wait to hear the amazing story of salvation. Instead, he just clearly explains what happened. I told this story to my GC Thursday, but back when I was a youth pastor, I had an experience where a young lady uh, who, was, who was a part of our student ministry, but whose family wasn't plugged into our church, got saved at a summer camp. And she had family that was really oppositional to her involvement in the church and her pursuit of the gospel. And so she really felt like her spiritual family was this youth group. And so she asked that we would baptize her at camp. She wanted to be baptized in the moment where she experienced it. So we did. And we filmed it. We celebrated. And we brought the video home and played it for our church and celebrated. And like a month or two later, we had a church business meeting. And a group of people got really upset at that baptism, really angry that this young lady hadn't waited to come home and walk down the aisle during an invitation and filled out a new member card. And they wanted to make sure that I knew that this young lady was not a member of our church because she had not waited to come home and walk down the aisle and that if she wanted her baptism to be recognized, she would need to come down the aisle during the invitation and fill out a card. And I'm being honest with you guys, I did not respond well. <laughs> I did not mimic Peter in that moment. I got very angry and very defensive. I think about that story a lot. I go back to that a lot as something that I really regret in my ministry. I'm really like, just genuinely sorrowful that I responded with the anger and the defensiveness that I did. Don't get me wrong. It was right to be angry about it. I mean, you know, this is a young lady working through her faith. But my anger turned me away from the folk who complained. I didn't think about Jesus' prayer for his church that it would be unified. I didn't think about Jesus' command that we would love one another like he loved us, that is, by the way, graciously and patiently. Instead, I was angry for this young girl who was young in her faith, and I wanted to stand in defense of her. And so I shut those people out and I wrote them off mentally. And I'm not joking when I say this. This is confessional. I never, after that business meeting, ever went and met with them and talked about it again. I never brought it up again. I just let that anger stew. I say this to you guys confessionally because that is not how it is to be. It's not how we're, that's not how we're to engage in conflict as a church. That's not how how God's, God's children should come together. Because conflict is inevitable. It is a part of life. If we're going to do the work to be the sort of church that actively seeks out outsiders of our community and invites them inside to experience freedom in Christ, then we are going 
to step on each other's toes, step on each other's idols, step on each other's immaturities. It's going to happen. The question is not whether, whether or not these conflicts will arise. The question is, how will we treat each other when they do? We can be the sort of church, we can be the sort of believers who address these sorts of conflicts through calmly and clearly sharing testimonies of God's work. I love Peter's approach because it's so loving and calm, but also because it points back to the actual truth of the matter. He points to the fact that it was God who was working, that God brought this thing about. I mean, look at the language he uses. He, he points back to Jesus' prediction of the coming Holy Spirit. He, he talks about how the Spirit of God came upon those believers just like he did on them at Pentecost. He, he frames their concerns so beautifully. Should I have stood in the way of what God was doing? And ultimately, in his explanation, he reminds them that regardless of how they may feel in the moment, there are now more people in the kingdom than there were before this happened. And that, that's powerful. What, What I love about this text is that Peter's explanation, his engagement of them, didn't actually magically make this conflict go away. This will come back up throughout the life of the early church. In fact, in Acts 15, the apostles will actually have to convene a whole council to talk about this issue, and Peter will be called forward to give this same testimony again. And, And Paul will deal with this wing of the church in opposition for literally the entirety of his ministry. Go and go and read Galatians. He has very strong words about these brothers and sisters, right? But what I love is that even though the conflict didn't go away, in the moment, rather than the church being divided in anger and conflict and bitterness, in the moment, the church is united in worship. Do you see this? Peter's leadership in this conflict brought the church, even those who were hurt and upset, into honest and joyful worship of the new work of God. You see how it ends? They come together celebrating God is is saving even the Gentiles. And they worship because of it. This leads us perfectly to the second application. The church has to set aside their cultural comfort for the sake of the kingdom. The church has to set aside, we, you and I, have to set aside our cultural comfort for the sake of the kingdom. As I've said this five times, I'm going to say it one more. The simple fact is that we believe God is calling a massively diverse people unto himself. He is calling sinners and outsiders, the depraved, the forgotten. He is bringing them inside, bringing them home, inviting them to the table. Think of the analogy of the wedding feast. Who are the people that the the master of the feast brings in? He brings in the dirty people and the forgotten people and the people in the alleyways and the people in the streets. He brings them inside to experience his hospitality. He aligns himself with them. And if we're going to join in that work, if we're going to be a part of that kingdom work, we must love the kingdom of God more than we love our cultural comforts. There is way around it. There's a more 
surface level of this application that I think we can really easily get around, even though we might not like it. If you're in Christ and you look around your church family and you see things like political opinions you don't like or clothing choices you don't like or musical tastes you don't like or any number of other things you don't like, we can all sit here and kind of honestly go, yeah, I pretty much just need to get over myself and love the kingdom of God more than I love my preferences, right? God is calling unto himself liberals and conservatives. God is calling unto himself young people and old people. God is calling unto himself people of different tastes, people of different preferences, people of different races, people of different socioeconomic classes, different ethnicities, different stories, different people. We must love the kingdom and our citizenship in that kingdom more than we love our cultural comfort. That may be painful to practice, but on that surface level of I walk into church and someone else walks in and I don't like the way they look, that may be a real thing you have to deal with in your heart, but we can all pretty easily come together and go, yeah, you got to deal with that. You got to deal with that. That's not how it works. God calls in all sorts of people. If we want the church to be as diverse as Revelation talks about it being, then it's going to mean lots of stuff we don't like. That isn't our purpose. It's just kind of, kind of what it is. But I think there's a deeper application here that is actually way more painful to address. You see, from our perspective, we can see how these Christians from the circumcision party were really just blinded by their culture, right? But you have to understand, these folk saw this as a theological conviction, not a cultural one. They had taken their culture and superimposed it onto their theology, and they no longer realized that. For the Jews in the first century to separate out the Talmud from the Torah, I mean, we can sit here and go, well, one's scripture and one's not. But that just wasn't in the mindset of these more conservative pharisaical Christians. It just wasn't a thing. There's no command in Scripture for Jews not to eat with Gentiles. There just isn't. In fact, the Scripture actually talks really bluntly through the ministry of the prophets and the law about how God is calling Gentiles unto himself. And about how the new kingdom and the new temple will have space for people of all nations. But they had a hard time separating this out. The church missed this, or this part of the church. They had so deeply intertwined their cultural teachings, Jewish culture, teachings of the rabbis, etc. They had a hard time separating this out from the actual teaching of Scripture. It was all molded together in their hearts. This is the exact same problem the European missions organizations were facing in the time of Hudson Taylor. They had so connected their Christianity to their culture that they could not imagine a way of sharing the gospel and increasing the kingdom that didn't involve sharing European cultural norms. Because these circumcision party Jews felt betrayed by Peter. They felt like their pastor and their apostle had sacrificed his theological convictions to lower the bar and let in people who should not be let in. They felt betrayed. 
But the reality is, they weren't. They weren't. Peter was on their side. Just like Peter was on Cornelius' side. He was seeking to be obedient to God and invite folk into the kingdom just like God himself was doing. Guys, it is, it is hard and painful work to disentangle our theology from our culture. But it is so necessary. You can't compromise sound doctrine to be more inclusive as a church. If you do, you may be bringing in outsiders, but you're not bringing them into the kingdom of God, right? You don't set aside God's standards for things like sexual ethics or human dignity or any other variety of things the Bible teaches on very clearly to make room for more folk. Sin is sin is sin is sin is sin. And you never walk away from that. But what's hard for us is figuring out what sorts of things feel like sin to us, but there's actually no scriptural teaching on it. There's actually nothing in it. My faith tradition is Baptist, and it's not very long back into the Baptist tradition that men in my, in my position at the pulpit were having really strong conversations about the game of pool and what that meant for your salvation and your inclusion in the church. And from the moment I was in youth group, there was pretty much a pool table in every youth room, right? So something shifted pretty dramatically. Because we have to learn how to disentangle Americana suburbia from the kingdom of God. And that's hard to do. That's messy work. But you have to. I'm not going to give specific examples of, of how we can do this because it's such an individual process, but I'll say this. This is why community and discipleship is so important. We've got to learn to love the kingdom more than we love our comfort, more than we love our preferences, no matter who we are and what our preferences are. And this is painful work. Let me land with this image that I think will be good for us. In Luke 15 Jesus tells one of his most famous parables, the parable of the prodigal son. And it's this beautiful story about this rich man who has two sons, and his, his younger son demands his inheritance early. And so his father does all this work, and he's honestly very disrespectful and very humiliating, but he gives the younger son his inheritance, even though he's still alive. And the younger son goes off and spends it all on wild living. And a short amount of time later, he's penniless and starving to death, and working as a farmhand, feeding pigs, contemplating eating the pig slop because he's so hungry. And he thinks to himself, I should go home and try and become one of my dad's servants. At least they have, that would be humiliating, but at least I wouldn't starve to death. So he goes home, and his father greets him with such grace and such excitement and such, such passion. He runs to him. And he, and he clothes him, and he dignifies him, and he celebrates him, and he slaughters the calf, and he calls for a party. And he says, he says it multiple times in the story, my son was lost, but now he's found. He was, he was dead, but now he's alive. And everyone's celebrating except for his older brother. His older brother is hanging out outside the party, angry, angry that his dad would waste resources on this son. So the dad comes out and talks to his son and says, why won't you come inside? And he says, why the heck would you celebrate him? He took from you, he took from us. He wasted it all. 
and now he comes back and you're, and you're throwing him a party. You should be throwing me a party. I'm the one who stuck by. I'm the one who is faithful. I'm the one who loves you. I'm the one who honors you. I'm the one who follows the rules. And the story ends kind of brutally because Jesus gives no resolution. The story ends with the father just begging the son to come inside. And it doesn't actually tell you how the son responds. You just see the father going, son, please come in. Your brother was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive. We have to celebrate that. And it's just over. I love that story for a lot of reasons, but I think for, t- for us today, what I'd like to reflect on and end us on is this invitation Jesus gives us through the older brother. See, the older brother, he really was. You really can't understand why he was so upset. The younger brother was so terrible. He had done their family so much wrong. He had done such injustice. And here is everyone celebrating him. How would that not make him angry? Guys, I think Jesus has something really specific for us in this. I think he's really kindly asking us, are you the older brother? God is calling to himself a radically diverse church full of varying levels of maturity and sin. Folk will stumble into the kingdom of God by the grace of God in varying states of pain and disrepair. And they will bring all of that with them into our gatherings, into our communities, into our discipleship groups, into our families. This is the nature of the generosity of God. He pays the same wages to those who labored for nine hours and those who labored for one. And I think Jesus simply asks us, will you begrudge him his kindness? Will we welcome prodigals home? Will we celebrate lost sheep being brought back? Are we the kind of people who pout, who stomp our foot, who demand our way, who demand our own comfort, who demand our own honor? In other words, are we the sort of people who will lay aside our cultural comforts to be the sort of place that is actually safe and actually welcoming and actually celebratory? of the amazing, diverse work of God. I pray that we will be. So here's what I'd like for us to do. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you guys to pray. I'd love, the band's going to come up, and they're just going to, for just a couple minutes, play kind of on the chords and then go into the song. And I want to invite us during that time to just reflect for a moment. Are we the older brother? Can we be different? How can we be the sort of people who celebrate the generosity of God, not begrudge it? So I'd ask you guys to do what you need to do in this space for a minute, just to to be with Christ and to be with him in prayer and to reflect and just see what he says to you. And once we've been in that for a minute, I'll pray for us and then we'll jump into the song. Do what you need to do with Jesus.
Father, I don't have a lot to say. I just ask, Lord, that you would make me, you would make us, you would make our family the kind of family that celebrates with us and that joins with you in the world.